Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 182. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 182 you're listening to. My guest today is Mike Kennedy. Mike is the rhythm guitarist for the band The All-American Rejects, and he's also a producer and engineer. He's worked with uh, Mast Intruder, Direct Hit, Screeching Weasel, The Copyrights, and uh, Red City Radio. And he is currently a citizen. That's right. He's a citizen of Edmond, Oklahoma, where he uh, has his studio in his house, where he chatted with me over Skype, and we uh, we had a good chat. You'll hear it all. Yeah, Mike Kennedy coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So um, recently I uh, went up to Portland, Oregon for a session uh, with the band Tiger Touch. Um, Tiger Touch is a band that uh, Cliff Truesdale, who does the theme music for the show, uh, he's in the band. So the band flew me up to... Uh, do a session at Jackpot, uh, which of course is my friend uh, Larry Crane's uh, studio up there. You know, you all know Larry Crane from Tape Op. And man, what a studio! I got to say, really got to give props to Larry. You know, years ago uh, he told me, "Yeah, I'm building a new studio, and it's going to be, you know, totally dummy proof." Well, I I definitely can attest to that. It's what is dummy proof? Well, you go in and everything is labeled everything so you know where everything is you know where the mics are you know where the cables are you know where the headphones i mean it's super easy the patch bay isn't normaled everything is what you see is what you get so as long as you understand signal flow you can make anything happen and like little details like if there's a rack with a bunch of you know miscellaneous mic pre's and eq's in it uh that rack has a name and that rack then is on the right hand side of, of the patch bay that corresponds to it. So, you know, it's easy to find because you know how small that writing is. Anyhow, fantastic infrastructure and little, little things really caught my attention. Like, um, let's say, you know, what do we forget when we go to the studio? Oh, I forgot my phone charger. I got to run home. No, there's a whole box full of phone chargers for Android and Apple phones. Oh, man, we need four AA batteries for this oddball device we're using. Uh, there's a little rack that's got batteries of every type labeled you know nine volt triple a double a dc uh all right there um there's a shutdown sequence uh that is listed there's a opening sequence for you know this is all for the visiting engineer and uh man it really really works great studio sounds great has a great selection of mics and it, this isn't just a shout out to larry but uh i mean which he's done a great job but really kind of more of a, a statement on infrastructure you know, you can have a studio with all the greatest gear in the world that you have open to the public and outside engineers, but if it's not set up well and maintained well, it's just not good. And I I also have to say, staff is key too. Gus Berry, who helped us out at the studio, was amazing. Uh, I had an input list ready to go on day one, and the two of us tag-teamed that list and got the session up and running really, really quickly. So. So, yeah, check it out. If you ever get a chance to stop by Jackpot, you should. But uh, think about your own infrastructure, whether it's in your home studio or a commercial studio. Think about how it all flows and how it's labeled. So, yeah, infrastructure. Think about it. 
want to give a shout out to our friends over at Universal Audio. You know, they help make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. And they're you know, definitely one of the most loved pro audio companies, I would say, out there. They're making some great stuff. Um, I've mentioned I'm going to Europe this summer and going to be doing a lot of traveling. So I need to be mobile. I need to be able to still maintain a level of quality for uh, the podcast. And so I'm going to take an arrow with me. I don't know if you've seen it. It's it's a two-in, two-out interface from them. Uh, you can check it out at universalaudio.com's website, which is uaudio.com. The great thing for me is there's no power supply. So USB-C or Thunderbolt 3 plugged right into my uh, MacBook Pro. It's going to be great. I can actually do stuff on the plane, and I don't have to worry about power, which is lovely. Uh, of course, except for the laptop, but we'll figure that one out. Yeah, it's a great, great little device, and I'm looking forward to taking it out on the road. It's very small. So, yeah, so check that out at uaudio.com. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at gearsluts.com. Be sure and stop in and check out the uh, Audio Life subforum. We sponsor it, and it's a great companion to working class audio because it's a lot of the same topics. And, you know, if you're kind of over talking about gear and you want to talk about life and all the things around being an audio professional, that's a great, great place to go. So check that out at gearslets.com. A uh, also a reminder, Summer NAM is coming up. It's right around the corner, June 28th through the 30th in Nashville. Uh, be sure and uh, pay attention online to the new product announcements that are going to be coming out. And if you're going to be there, man, enjoy yourself. I love summertime in Nashville. I know it's a little warm, but man, it's a good time. Love Nashville. Great place. All right, well, that's it. Let's uh, let's get down to it. Let's uh, head on over to Oklahoma and talk to Mike Kennedy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Ah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. God, where to begin? Let's go back. Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in Houston, grew up there uh, until early high school, uh, at which point I uh, moved to Oklahoma City. In high school, you moved to Oklahoma. Yeah. That's a drag, isn't it? When you move like right yeah. at that point? It was a bummer at the time. Uh, everything has since worked out quite well. And I, uh, <laughs> I'd say and, so. And I love it here uh, more. Like I definitely feel, you know, when I think of where I'm from, I think of Oklahoma these days. So I mean, I'm still here, even though the rest of my family has since moved back to Houston. Were there any musical leanings when you were in Houston that you had? Definitely a punk rock kid. Still am to this day. I always was just a huge music fan growing up. Like the first record I bought when I was five, I borrowed five bucks from my brother to buy Destroyer by Kiss. And so like, I've always had this obsession with music. And so, you know, it's like a lot of hard rock. You know, I love the Beatles. I love Queen and all that stuff. But then, you know, in probably sixth grade, I discovered punk. That's kind of been my obsession ever since. What band came onto your radar first? Well, the first things I got, I had my brother's friend had um, some cassettes of uh, the first Ramones and the first in the Sex Pistols record. And so those were kind of the like I knew of both those bands prior, but that was the first time I sat down and listened to them. And I and I very much enjoyed it. But then I think when I heard like Misfits and Dead Kennedys, that was the kind of tipping point where I was like, OK, <laughs> this is for me. Yeah. And then since then, it's been, you know, I've delved in it, you know, all eras, all levels of popularity. Like I'm a nerd for it. So what about coming to Oklahoma? Was that a shock to the system? And how is it being a punk rock kid in Oklahoma? At that point, which was mid 90s, it was actually great. Like Houston, I, I lived way out in the suburbs. And I'd go to punk shows, but I was often like the young kid there. And I don't know, it didn't have like, it didn't feel like a scene. 
But then I came to Oklahoma and it was very much like a like a scene with a couple hundred kids all going to shows at this American Legion Hall, like very close to where I lived. And so it was actually like, it was great. It was very welcoming and like, uh, I felt more a part of something than I did in Houston. So it was awesome. Was recording on your radar then, or was it purely music at that point? Uh, it's purely music and, you know, like I was in bands and I loved recording. I loved, you know, I put out our seven inches for my band. And so I loved the aspects of recording, but I, I, I won't lie. The actual like nuts and bolts of recording the engineering side wasn't super like I, I did. It just, it was just a way of getting things recorded. You know, like I didn't, I didn't have that interest yet. That came along way later. Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a minute. In your early experiences as a musician, what were your perspectives or thoughts about recording? You know, what, what was your experience with engineers or producers and, and your relationship knowing what you know now? What did you observe then? There were there were guys who recorded my bands and they were definitely, you know, attempted to be very helpful with, you know, just helping us perform our best. Sometimes later we found out one guy, he he would could be a little overbearing and uh tell us we were we were playing really poorly when sometimes we go back and it's like, ah, it wasn't as bad as he made us feel like we were doing. But uh I don't know. It was it was fine. It was just exciting to be recording and to have like something to like show people like you can't come to my shows, but here's I can prove that I am in a band. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so it was just always exciting to do that. And for me, being a record nerd, I always was like stoked to then turn that into vinyl and uh, then have really have something to show for being in a band. At what point did recording start to come into view as ooh? I'm interested in this aspect of it. Um, that was probably around 2003. So it's right when the Rejects were kind of becoming like a full-time actual professional band. And that was right around the time Inboxes came out. And I saw that it was like, oh, I can actually demo and experiment on my own. So I, I got a laptop and an Inbox. And so that's kind of what started it. And that was like where I was like, oh, like I kind of fell in love with the use of Pro Tools and how what that could mean for making music. And then it just kind of expanded from there. Were any uh, of All American Rejects records done to tape at any point? No. Well, it's funny. Later on, there were conscious things to do things to tape. Like we did our third record we did with Eric Valentine. And he was at that moment, he's like, I'm very burnt out on Pro Tools. I just want to do a record like I used to do. And uh, so I'd like to do it to tape. So we did a lot of that to tape until it was just taking forever. <laughs> and then we eventually <laughs> switched over. But so about half that record is done to tape and then the rest done digitally. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Like most of my growing up, it was like eight at days, like in my old band. So I haven't done a whole lot to like old school, real to real style recording. That's interesting. So your experience kind of being brought up digitally when you came to analog was that, oh my God, this is taking forever. Yeah. We were used to being able to punch the drum take, you know, at some point, you know, not have to get through the entire song with perfection and, you know, same with guitar stuff for me. So yeah. And then just that, you know, that those few seconds of just rewinding for takes is, can become such a grueling thing <laughs> after a minute. And so it's funny, it's funny to go, to go to that and just be like, ah, you know, the computer's fine. <laughs> okay, so you you have an inbox, you have a laptop. I've experienced this. I'm curious if you've experienced it where you are a musician, but 
the recording thing becomes so attractive and mm. and it's kind of a, another thing that you can do that's different from your primary instrument. Did you experience that at all or was it always just a tool to capture music? Um, no, I mean, it definitely became that. When I started actually getting into it and realizing, you know, I was getting to a point where I was like, I can do this and actually make something that sounds good. I very much got into less, I guess, the like really like basic arrangement stuff, or sorry, uh, engineering stuff and more into arrangement stuff. Like I was very much into like producing side and uh, song arrangement and just like layering and all that stuff. And that's where my like obsession with it kind of grew. Whereas I just love the idea of helping a band find their song and make it the best it can be and like make it this uh, sonic thing that they may not have even envisioned originally. And so that's what drew me in. And then the technical side kind of followed suit as, you know, just what you have to kind of know to, to make those imaginations become a reality. Who did you turn to or what did you turn to to learn the the technical side of it? You know, asking friends, asking engineers that I knew questions and then just, you know, practice. It just kind of just, yeah, I'm just like, all right, I, I someone is entrusting me to do it, so I have to do it <laughs> and I have to make sure it's done right. So I just worked hard and just did whatever I could. I definitely had the help of really great mixing engineers like Justin Perkins, who's been on the show, to take these recordings that I made that definitely had lots of flaws and imperfections on the engineering side. And they helped, you know, <laughs> hide those as best they could and make great mixes out of what I provided. But uh, yeah, so that that was kind of kind of how my trajectory with this came about. So have you not been participating in in the mixing as far as like trying to mix stuff entirely on your own uh not too much like i i'm i'm to a point where i feel like i could deliver a pretty good mix but honestly you know like most of the time the records that i work on by the time we're done with the actual tracking and everything i'm kind of at a point where i'm like i'm ready to hand it off and let some fresh ears have their thing um, and I feel like, you know, that makes for a better record because, you know, I am in a, you know, you get into a point where you like kind of have some like tunnel vision after you've been listening to something for so long. It helps to have someone else come in and, you know, be like, no, what you're trying to do here. Like, you know, you often will like end up trying to mask things with effects and whatnot. And then it's like, then someone else is just like, no. And then they put it clean in a mix and you're like, ah, oh, shit, I was overthinking everything. And yeah. I, I love that. So what were the challenges for you in getting up to speed in the studio from, from, you know, being technically proficient? Because obviously, you know, you, you're a musician, you play guitar, you can, you could speak the language to a band, but if you're in control of the technical, it can be a little bit of a monkey wrench in the beginning. Can it not? Yeah. And I mean, it's thankfully like the first record I ever produced, it was for uh, a guy named Ben Weasel, who was the singer of a band called Screeching Weasel that I grew up loving. I somehow convinced him to let me do his record. And me and the drummer of the All Mac Rejects, Chris, he, we were essentially the band on the record. And so that helped a lot because I was able to go and just by myself and with, you know, someone I've known forever, just sit there and engineer it and figure out everything without having that like just looming stress of outside band members, you know, like knowing that I'm, I'm kind of feeling my way around things. And uh, so that was a huge <laughs> learning experience. 
Matt Squire, who's now like a huge producer, he was he's a buddy who let me actually use his studio to record that. He was going out of town. So he's like, you can just come stay at my place, use my studio. And so he had like an SSL desk. I'd never run a desk. So that was just like I was just dropped into it. And so I just lived at that studio for like three weeks and just made that record exist by sheer will. And that was a huge learning experience. I learned so much. I'm doing that. And I, I, in retrospect, I'm very lucky that I was able to just sort of essentially be my be by myself and make this record. And so I could learn myself and not have to be as stressed by having other people around expecting something out of me. I would categorize Eric Valentine as probably super genius <laughs> in many respects. I'm curious what you learned from him. Um, just an attention to detail. Like he, he's, he's a mad scientist. Like I feel like, uh, like he will sit there. Like I can remember the first thing I recorded for that record was this one simple guitar part where I'm just going, darn it, darn it. And he was sitting there dialing in his homemade EQs that had, that had no face plates of any kind. So it's just a bunch of knobs that I didn't know what any of them were, but he knew. He, I had to sit there for like an hour and a half or more just playing that chord over and over again while he dialed in EQs and just, he had, I don't know, he just hears things that most people don't hear. As many times as I had to do a downbeat of a section because it just didn't feel right to him. It is all this stuff that it's kind of an extreme that I feel like maybe was overboard at times, but mm -hmm. it really taught me to, I don't know, have this ear for what feels right, you know, that perfect thing. And I don't know. He, he, he's just like a, it's just a, it was just a great mind to observe in every aspect from arrangement to, you know, sonic technical things. That That is interesting because, you know, we can, um, we can work with somebody like that who is like a mad scientist and you can kind of go down the rabbit hole with them and walk away from it with great respect and understanding and definitely learning some things while at the same time, teaching yourself about how you prefer to work or not work. Yeah, exactly. And kind of cherry pick from what you can learn from that person and go, okay, well, that's cool. And that's the, that's his way to do it. And I like that. But from my taste for my personality, this works better. So would you say that maybe there's some musicians who, and, and maybe this includes yourself. Maybe at the time you didn't have the patience for that, but in retrospect, you look at that and go, actually, that was a good experience to to have happened. Yeah, for sure. You know, I feel like every time every time I've gotten to make a record, it's definitely that. And, you know, each each record with the Rejects, we've been lucky enough to do with a different amazing producer and engineers. And each one has taught me something different, be it, yeah, just like, bedside manner kind of stuff or, mm -hmm. you know, recording technical stuff. And, uh, you know, and being in a band, being on that side of it, I do feel like I can bring something to working with bands to like kind of understanding both sides of it and knowing how to work on a personality level so that everyone's happy and everyone's productive, but we can still get serious and get things done at the same time. Do you think that your recording experience has changed you as a guitar player for the Rejects or any other band for that matter, and you how you approach the studio now when you're tasked with being a player? Oh, for sure. I think too, one of the things in particular is I, I'm definitely a red light fever kind of guy. Like when someone's recording me, I get super nervous and I don't play as well. So I, 
I, I can definitely sympathize with that when I am recording people. And so I try to put people at ease when we're in that scenario. And then being on the engineering side, it's kind of just attuned my ear to what good playing is and what good techniques are and, and that stuff. So I think that's helped me improve as a player as well. And just like, there's just like little nuances to playing that I think most people don't even realize they do or need to do until it's like in a studio situation where things are amplified. So yeah, I, I feel like having the experience on both sides has definitely improved my playing quite a bit. Uh, if you're a guitar player and you don't have any studio experience, your mentality is focused on on the live world. So when you bring that to the studio, what are the mistakes that people make that that you could verbalize that you think that they could change? A big thing that I, I tend to run into is especially with guys who are more very shreddy, like great guitar players. When it comes to playing a chord in tune, they're often not the greatest. And uh, and I think they don't realize that. Like it it takes, I, I often think that, you know, they, is even when they're great guitar players, they often don't even hear that little bit of like bending they're doing. And so there's a lot to like always, like trying to teach someone how to play just a power chord in tune. That's one that comes up a lot. That, and I feel like, People love to do vibrato on held notes. You know, that that very <laughs> like cartoony bend as you hold out that sustain. And often I'm just like, that is that doesn't sound good. You're you're bending it out of tune when you do that. Like just let it ring. And you know, like not to say that isn't something that works at times, but it's it's one of those very like guitar cliches that people just do that I'm like, no, that that's not that's not necessary. Now, did you, when you started to become more of an engineer and as, and a producer, did you start feeling compelled to buy equipment, buy recording equipment? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so I've, I've, I've actually, I think finally in the past like year or so got to the point where I'm, I'm content where I'm like, all right, I have all the tools I could possibly need and they're all <laughs> the quality that I, you know, I, I don't need anymore. If I can't make a great record with this, it, it's not the gear. And so, uh, so yeah, so I definitely went through that phase of just buying probably things I didn't need or, or buying more things before I had really like, I don't know, gotten to know and, and master the ones I already had. Interesting. What, what do you think causes one to put the brakes on and say, okay, I've got enough versus continually going online and looking at the various websites or catalogs that you might get in the mail. What changes? What do you think causes that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's just getting to a point where you have, I guess, maybe some confidence in what you do. And so you kind of realize that a lot of times the compulsion to buy gear is sort of a compensation of like, oh, if I only had this, you know, <laughs> and uh, and so I don't know. For me, I think that's 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 at least what it is for me. Where I got to a point where I was like, yeah, I don't I don't need it. Like uh, lately too, like you know, most of the bands I record, they have day jobs, and so it's a very limited amount of time to record. And often I have to travel to them to do it because they can't take off to come here. And I've had to do a couple records where it's like, I'm just taking, you know, one little rack case of gear, just like a compressor, a couple pre's, you know, and a few and a handful of mics. I'm making like really great records, I think. And, I'm, and it's kind of that realization of like, this is all I need in my laptop. And I'm, I'm doing the records that I want to make. So it's like having this 
you know, obviously I'm not doing as much mixing. Maybe that would change things. But, you know, having this huge wall of gear isn't that important. It's about just having a few of the right things and the know-how and then making sure, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about the songs. And so whatever, you know, the gear is just a conduit to get to the songs and making sure the arrangement's right and the, everything is good there. So I don't know. For me, that's all it was is that realization of I don't need a ton to make what I want to make. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio who helped make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. Recently had the pleasure of using their Mini K47 mic, which is priced at $299 on a Marshall cabinet. And I got to tell you, it sounded absolutely amazing. And that's going to be part of my setup from here on out. So if you want to check it out, go over to roswellproaudio.com. And they do offer free shipping. But if you really want to help our cause with them, make sure on the checkout when you're buying a mic that you include the code WCAFREESHIP. And that way they know that you came from us and you heard about Roswell Pro Audio from Working Glass Audio. So there it is. Check it out. RoswellProAudio.com. So you travel a bit to make records with bands. Mm-hmm. When you travel to other studios, have you ever been in situations where you show up and you're like, oh, this is not going to work? I'm not asking you to throw anybody into the bus <laughs> here, but. No, um, I mean, there's definitely times where you get there and you see the gear and it's less than optimal and maybe the space is less than optimal and you're like, okay, this is, this is not ideal, but <laughs> I got to make it work. And I've definitely run into that or times when like you're at a place that is decent and you're kind of like trying to learn the room. And, and there's definitely been times where I've come home later, opened up the session and been like, oh my God, this is not what I thought we were recording. <laughs> you know, like it just sounds completely different. And uh, you met with a challenge of like, okay, this is what I have to work with. I have to make it work and figure out how I'm going to do this. So that that's definitely probably my the biggest drawback of the traveling to record. Who typically is booking the studio in those situations? Um, usually it'll be the band member because they're familiar with the area and what's around, what's available. Often they have a friend who can hook up a good deal. You know, like I'm definitely, you know, the records I make are very budget um, on, you know, smaller indie labels. And so... There's not, there's not a lot of money to go around and have to make things work with what's available. Interesting. And how do you find the bands that you want to work with? It's typically, it's just like, I'm a fan and either I've reached out just totally cold call bands and been like, I like you. This is what I do. I would love to record you. Or, you know, it's a very insular scene with punk rock stuff where, you know, I've done one thing with one band and words gotten around or maybe whoever runs the label to put that out is like, well, hey, you did a great job with this band. Would you want to record this other band we have? So it's just like that, that kind of stuff, essentially just word of mouth. Hmm. I, I, word of mouth. <laughs> you know, I, ta I talked about that on my last show. I just said, you know, most people, I think all of my guests have said word of mouth is how it happens. Yeah. Like I, I've thought about like, I don't have a website or anything dedicated to my recording stuff. And I've thought about like, maybe I should do that. But like, so far I haven't really needed to, like I've, I've most of the time I'm kind of like debating, like, ah, oh, do I want to take a break before I do another record? <laughs> and so like, I, it's a, I, right now it's a luxury I have that I don't have to shop myself too hard. Um, it's also a huge luxury that recording 
doesn't have to be my day job, essentially, you know, like I have the band, I have something else that brings in money so that the recording is kind of just like some fun extra stuff I get to do. But ironically, these days, because the band slowed down a bunch, the recording is what I do with my time more than anything. But the band still pays my bills way more than the recording does. You listen to the show sometimes, so you, mm -hmm. you, you've heard me talk about work-life balance. Is that an issue for you? Um, it does. You know, lately, since it's been where the recording has been more of my time, there is a little bit of that. And I feel like, I guess, maybe less than the work-life balance, just sort of the mental balance of, like, not burning out on recording stuff. Because I probably do fixate when i am working on a record i am just in the record and i'm probably i probably overanalyze everything about it and so i'm just in it a lot which means i can get to a point of burning out pretty not not quickly but there there's a point where i, I usually have to deal with i'm getting to the end of my rope i need to you know take a little time and take a few days off and and deal with that because usually i am kind of just like I just, i'll just work i'll just wake up and i'll work and I'll, I'll go eat lunch and I'll come back and I'll do more. And, and for a few days, it's amazing. And then I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. It becomes like a, the slag. Um, so yeah, I, I've definitely lately too, because I've been right now kind of simultaneously working on two albums. And it's the first time I've done that. And that's definitely been sort of a like, all right, I need, I need to figure out a way of like, cutting out time where I'm just not working on music for a little bit so that I can, so that it's not becoming a detriment to these records either that I'm getting burned out. Um, so definitely that's something I've been thinking about lately is like maybe scheduling myself more rather than just, cause you know, my, my setup is in my home. So I am able to just go in and do it at any point. And you know, that's a great thing. And that can be a bad thing when you, when you have, just are able to work all the time if you put yourself in that position. So your involvement in the in All American Rejects, do you obviously that that helps kind of uh, clear the way for a lot of questions from people like, well, who is this guy and what what what's his experience? Does it ever become a problem? Like, does it ever become a handicap to to be part of a, a band like like the Rejects? Uh, no, I mean it's it's definitely been. A help, I think. I think it kind of, even before I had much of a resume as far as recording, I think people assumed I was probably, you know, knowledgeable just because of I was in this successful band. So yeah, I, I don't think it's it's been a hurt at all. I was afraid maybe because, you know, I I like I typically like to work with punk bands because that's the music I like, and punk bands can be very suspicious of people in popular bands who are less than punk, and uh, so I was worried maybe that would be a thing. But I feel like we're kind of a band that maybe not maybe sometimes secretly, but that most a lot of punk bands do have some kind of appreciation for. Or at least they're like, oh, that song's catchy, like you know. It's not this full hatred thing. Because I think also we're never a band that tried to claim to be a punk band in any way. We were just a rock band, wrote poppy songs. So I don't know. I, I feel like the band has only been helpful with me as far as recording side goes. Do you think with um, punk rock bands, it, it, I mean, is there any rationale to, can a punk rock band not embrace uh, a high fidelity recording scenario to where sonically it's full high-res recording or because my uh, memory or my experience with 
you know, I think of the Dead Kennedys. I think of Black Flag. I think of, you know, the 80s because there's I've, I've got about 10 years on you. So bands of that era had kind of a lower fidelity. You know where I'm going with this? It's like, does punk rock have to be associated with less quality in the studio, do you think, to be legit? No, I mean, I, my thing is to try to make very good sounding punk records. Like that's uh, something I always enjoyed. Like for me in, as a teenager in the mid nineties, that was kind of when there was a lot of bands striving to sound better sonically, like the whole mm. like fat records scene, like those records at the time sounded very produced for punk records. Um, it's funny going back to them now, how not as produced they sound in retrospect. But uh, yeah, so I've always been a fan of that. And like, I've always pushed when I make records, yeah, to be good fidelity and, you know, really try to go beyond the guitar bass drums. That's it, you know, of, of punk rock arrangement and really push bands to have other instruments and other sounds and lots of layers and make something that is yeah, like a big, good sounding record that's still a punk record, but tries to take a step beyond what's expected of punk. Yeah. yeah. And and what about the bearing of vocals? Oh, I, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Like I, I think, yeah. you know, the vocals should be right out there in front. Yeah. I, I feel like most of the bands I've worked with tend to be in the same thing. They, they kind of are like ambitious. They want to do something more than they've been able to do before. Um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of great engineers who will make a record that sounds great, but they're also, they're not as much on the producing side as far as like, you know, pushing for arrangement stuff or pushing for layers. And it's, they're, they're more about just pushing for performance and, and sonic quality. And that's where I, the thing I feel like I bring the best is, you know, helping a band realize a song and realize a vision and make, make a, a record bigger than they could imagine they were going to make. What about the use of drum samples? You know, I know that you're not necessarily involved in the mix, but do you ever get a situation where a band is aware that, hey, the drums didn't sound as badass as they do <laughs> on the mix? What happened? Um, you know, I feel like for, for myself, it's just a, you know, an ends justifies the means. Whatever it takes to get the record to sound great, um, I'm fine with. We've had times where... Uh, mixers will do samples that are just not great sounding. And so then it becomes obvious, you know, and mm -hmm. that's, that's where it's like, all right, we need, you know, we get that you want to use samples and there's nothing wrong with that, but we got to make it seem like there's not samples. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, I just think it's fine. There's that finding that balance of finding something that still sounds natural, whatever, whatever sounds good in the end, I don't care how it gets there. But uh, yeah, if it's, if it's bad samples, I'll definitely speak up. And, and, you know, most bands, I think they'll, they'll speak up too, but I haven't found one that they're particularly caring that they're samples. They just want to make sure in the end, it just sounds right. With regard to where you're at now, uh, career wise, I mean, you've, you, you've been in a very successful band and you seem to be really in the midst of, of a very uh, enjoyable uh, and burgeoning recording career as a recording professional. Is there still a sense of struggle? Because, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, financially you've, you've, you're comfortable now and you don't have to, you know, fight it out as hard as, as you used to. So where's the motivation and the, the struggle for you to, today? I guess it's just wanting to 
be fulfilled creatively, you know, like with the band slowing down, you know, I get my kind of creative fix out of doing the producing. I don't really have a desire to do like another band, like a side band or write. Like I'm not big on like, oh, I want to write and release my own music. I'd rather I get more enjoyment and fulfillment out of helping other people realize their songs. So I think that's that's pretty much it. That's my drive. Like I just have a blast working on songs and making them happen. And and it all comes back. Like I'm I'm a huge record nerd. I have way too many. And it all comes back to like there's nothing cooler to me than when I get a package in the mail that's an LP of a record I've recorded. And I'm like, to me, that's the end goal right there. I'm like, oh. yeah. This is so cool. I, I had an experience early on where I had been in some bands that were signed and, you know, that was fine, but I got a bigger thrill out of seeing a record come out of a band I helped record. That gave me a bigger thrill. And that's when it was a, a red flag to me. I was like, maybe I shouldn't be out there touring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. So yeah, you, you totally get it. That's to me, that's, that's, that's my motivation. I just... I want to have as many records that I can go, I had a hand in that. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me happy. And it's like, you know, I, I don't make much money often doing that. And it's not, so it's not really about that. It's just kind of like being able to have done something. And then there's like this record of it. And uh, I love that. I love that feeling. Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. Do you have any mentors that uh, currently or in the past that you are worth mentioning? Yeah, like uh, I mentioned Matt Squire before. He was definitely, when I was first getting into recording, I haven't talked to him in a while, but like he, he was definitely someone who helped lead me and gave me lots of great advice. And, and I, I learned a lot via him. You know, Justin Perkins, he's someone who has helped me out a lot along the way because he um, not only, you know, has helped mix and master a bunch of records I worked on, but some of the early stuff I was recording was for uh, Screeching Weasel, which he was in that band as well. And so oh. he was also helping me engineer some of these records I was producing. And he's taught me a lot along the way. And Justin's also got a lot of involvement in bands. I remember him coming through San Francisco and reaching out saying, hey, I'm playing with Tommy Stinson's band. And for such a... Um, a very uh, conscientious and calm individual. He seems to he seems to have a large part in a lot of scenes. Yeah, he's one of the most calm, quiet people I've ever known. But yeah, he's 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 become far-reaching and does a lot. And uh, yeah, and yeah, he's super talented engineer, mastering engineer, uh, great dude. Yeah, super been super helpful to me for my learning and and my growing as a yeah. recording engineer. And he's probably listening to to our to the show, so he's probably <laughs> blushing right now. So. Sorry, Justin. Uh, also, 
what are the things that you do to not only keep yourself motivated, but to better yourself in, you know, the things that motivate you? I've mentioned in the past, some people smoke pot, some people meditate, some people go to church. People do a variety of things to motivate themselves and to better themselves and educate themselves. What are the highlights for you? I guess for me, you know, I, I'm not someone who does, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. If, if I have any vice, it's Dr. Pepper. And uh, it, yeah, it, for a long day in the studio, taking a break to get a taco and drink some Dr. Pepper is definitely motivation to keep going. Um, as far as just expanding my, my abilities, it's just, it's just working and, and doing it. And, you know, trying, you know, finding those things that are great and work, but also not uh, becoming stagnant and only going to those things that I've already found work well, still trying to push myself to discover new tricks and new things I could be doing so that I'm not just repeating myself with each record, which I find, you know, there's certain go-to things that it's just like, ah, you know, that works in every scenario. So I might as well use it pretty much. And, you know, there's times when, you know, I feel like I need to break myself out of that. And so that I'm expanding myself and constantly growing. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully hmm. I'm doing that. Now you have a setup, a, a recording setup in your home, but not necessarily a commercial type studio setup. No, it's just, uh, I mean, everything's, you know, a very pro setup and I, I use my living room as a live room. I have a, a bedroom set up as a control room and, you know, I, ha I have good gear. Like I, I've made records that I think sound very big, nice studio esque out of this house. Um, but no, it's not, not something I rent out, not something I, I bring in strangers, you know, I, I definitely feel like comfort everyone I bring in someone I've, I've, I've talked to and feel comfortable bringing in. No, you know, they're not going to fuck with my records and stuff. Would you ever see yourself as a studio owner of a commercial studio? I like the idea, like I was talking about earlier with, you know, separating myself a little bit from the recording at times, which is tough when you live in where you work most of the time. There are times when I kind of would love to have a space that I could go to so that I have that separation and be like, all right, I'm going home, cutting it off, I'm done. But just thinking about the cost, it's just... It's not worth it. Like, you know, I have, I have a great setup here that I, I'm very comfortable in. Um, I know it very well. I know all the spaces of where things sound a certain way. And uh, just at this point, I can't justify the cost. Essentially, that, that's what it boils down to. It's justify the cost of having a separate space when it's like, I'm fine here. It does what I need. And if you had advice for studio owners, based on your experience taking bands to studios around uh, different parts of the country or the world, what would that be? Like, what, what do studio owners need to be aware of? The most for me is studio owners that don't have Pro Tools or don't have at least a sort of current-ish version of Pro Tools, which is something I'm surprised that I've run into more times than I would expect. Not saying, you know, one DAW is better than the other, but... I feel like Pro Tools is a pretty standard thing that's like, even if that's not what you want to use, if you're running out your studio, you should have it. And I've had that experience quite a few times lately where it's like I've had to deal with being in a studio that has a good studio computer and setup, and I have to run off my laptop because they don't have Pro Tools. Um, that, that to me is the biggest thing I, I run into, to be honest. Um, most of the time there's, you know, gear-wise, it's usually enough to be like, all right, I can make this work even if it's not the greatest stuff. And you can't, I don't know, I feel like that's something you can't begrudge people, you know, they can afford what they can afford. 
but I feel like Pro Tools is something super easy <laughs> to have. Um, so that would, that, that would be the only thing that ever seems to really jump out at me about different studios that I go to. And when you're in those situations, are you producing and engineering and doing everything? Yeah, yeah. Most of the records I do, I am, yeah, doing all the engineering as I'm producing. And so, yeah, so I somehow have to worry about it, which I actually, I, I love doing that. I've talked to some people recently who talk about how they'd love to be able to just produce and then have someone else engineering and not worry about it. But I, the times that I've done that, which I, this uh, record I just worked on, I was co-producing it with someone and he was handling most of the engineering. And so I was in that, just sit on the couch, offer my suggestions, producer role. And I didn't like it. Like I like, I don't know, there's something about being in front of the screen and controlling things. And, and it, it just like, it, it maintains my focus, I feel like way more. And I just feel like, like I don't think about it. Like I'm just in it working. Whereas when I'm sitting there, I get much more in my head. And, and I don't know, I, I, like, I like the doing things. I like, I like engineering. <laughs> I wonder if it's any way similar to people who play guitar and sing and feel naked if they don't have a guitar in their hands. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah. And maybe, maybe it's kind of like what a, like a fidget spinner is for certain people where they have that, <laughs> like to me, the, the technical running of a session, like frees my mind for some reason to think more about the just producing things. And like, I don't know why that is. You think it would be the opposite, but I, I do. Like I have some kind of catharsis in sitting there hitting the keys and, you know, tampering with EQs and whatnot. I don't know. I, I love that. Interesting. Wow. Well, Mike, this has been great. It's great to, to meet you. Great to chat with you and hear about your end of it. It's a different perspective too, because you come from a successful band and you've come into the, uh, to the world of recording from a different angle. And that presents you with, or, or gives you certain advantages, I think, because you definitely have a modern day understanding of what bands go through and how you can be of more assistance on the other side of the glass because you can empathize, I think. Yeah, that and just like being in a band, like I said, like it kind of gives me some credibility that I probably didn't deserve on the recording side. And I, I feel like there's probably going to be a lot of engineers listening to this and being mad because I did kind of like skip a bunch of steps by having people trust me because I had this resume of a band. Then therefore I was like, jumping in probably to the deep end when I should have been wading in from the shallow end as far as the engineering side of things. But, um, you know, in the end, it's funny. I listened to the first record I produced not that long ago, and uh, it's kind of weird sounding sonically, but as, as far as arrangements and songs go, like, I'm really happy with it. So I feel like, all right, I at least had some kind of palpable skill that I was bringing to it and not just, like, going where I didn't belong, I think. I think I did okay. And I feel like I've hopefully only gotten better. I definitely admire all the people who've been cutting their teeth and like had to really have had to work hard to get to do records at the level that I've kind of lucked into getting to do pretty quickly. I'm sorry for being a, a line skipper to all those engineers. <laughs> <laughs> you jumped the queue, man. Yeah, I did. Well, obviously, you know, uh, listeners, you can... You've heard of the uh, the All American Rejects, and, and you can hear Mike in that. But uh, where can they find out more about you? You say you don't have a website, so where would people 
look for you online? I have Twitter and Instagram. They're both uh, at Mike AAR, all one word. If uh, just to know, kind of like see my recording stuff, uh, there is a Wikipedia page that has all of my recording discography on it. So you can check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm on, you know, Twitter and, and Instagram. I'm easy to get a hold of. You can send me a message. I'll reply. Great. And I'll put links uh, to all of that in the show notes for the listeners to, to check out. So, well, fantastic, Mike. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate you coming on Working Class Audio. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Nice to meet you. All right, man. Take See care. Bye. Mike Kennedy here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Another great one down. Man, we're just piling them up, getting there to 200, almost. We'll be there soon. So I uh, want to thank everybody. want to, of course, uh, encourage you to visit our sponsors who help make the podcast possible. I'm talking about Audio-Technica, The License Lab, Universal Audio, Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com. And I want to thank, of course, uh, Cliff Truesdell and uh, Chuck Smith for their efforts. And I want to thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, spread the word. Check us out on social media. Stop by WorkingClassAudio.com. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.